Hey, are you looking for new and innovative ways to connect with your children? Do you want to learn how to connect with them through hip-hop, social media, and popular culture? Then look no further than my company, The Glad Dad. I'm Dion, a keynote speaker, professional development trainer, and workshop presenter. And I'm also an expert in family engagement. And I want to show you and everyone around you how to use the latest trends to connect with young people on a much deeper level. A level that will truly break down barriers and create change. By working with The Glad Dad, you'll learn how to break through the noise and meet young people where they are to connect with them on their level. You'll discover new ways to communicate, engage, and create meaningful connections that'll last a lifetime. Whether you're a parent, teacher, or youth leader, I want to teach you the strategies that'll help you connect with your kids like never before. From keynote speeches to professional development training, I got you covered. So don't wait any longer. Visit my website, DionChavis.com today to learn more about how I can help you connect with your children through hip-hop, social media, and popular culture. Your kids will thank you for it. That's right, The Glad Dad, helping adults establish positive relationships with young people. Reach out to me today and let's discuss how I can serve you and your staff. Now let's get back to the podcast. Hey, y'all, and welcome to the latest and greatest episode of the Dads in the Class podcast. Of course, you know me, it's Dion Glad Dad, uh, here with the number one podcast discussing family engagement and fatherhood engagement in uh, the education of our children. I got a special guest. This is episode number seven. Y'all been rocking with us for seven episodes. Glad to be here. Glad to bring this show back. And uh, just glad that y'all continue to ask for uh, more content. So got a real dope guest on the podcast today. Somebody that I have known for a very long time. Somebody that is doing some really, really great work uh, in the field of literacy, in the field of education, in the field of teaching the babies, which is what I believe she says on her shirt. Uh, just all sorts of real, oh, teach the truth. Uh, just doing all sorts of really, really dope things out here. Uh, she is the uh, executive director and founder of Clever Communities in Action. We'll dive into that. But she goes by the name of Star Armstrong. Welcome, Star, to the show. Hey, Star, how are you, man? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Glad to have you on the show. Like you said, it's been a long time since we have uh, had a discussion. So I had to bring you on the podcast just because I wanted to talk about uh, not only the work that you have done in the past, but also the work that you guys are um, putting up in the future, because I know there's a lot of good things. And I know this is something that you have been uh, working on with your with your organization. And before you even started your organization, you have been working um, in, 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 in the field of literacy and in the field of teaching the babies for a very long time. So let's start talking about um, the moment that sparked the creation of Clever Communities in Action. Okay, okay, that is great. And um, you know, I just want to say shout out to all your viewers um and to you and um congratulations on the seventh episode. They say that's a divine number, so I'm glad to be here on episode number seven. Um, if we're gonna talk about what got me <laughs> into that, let's see how far back we're gonna go. Um, my my granny, my dear sweet maternal granny, um taught me to read at the young age of three. Um, on both sides of my family. I'm originally from Alabama and I'm the granddaughter of freedom fighters on both sides of my family. 
And so when Granny taught me to read at three, I was a voracious reader. I was reading and writing at a young age and I was taking down books, okay? Like I was reading like nobody's business. Y'all remember that book it club from back in the day? Your girl stayed with a pizza, a personal pan pizza, all right? I just love to read. Um, I liked reading biographies. I liked reading about um, Black history and Black historical figures. But the time came where, you know, I was into fiction and I wanted to read those chapter books. And back then it was Sleepover Friends. It was the Babysitter's Club. And as much as I adore those books and like hearing about the stuff that they got into, it was very obvious, uh, sometimes painfully obvious, that those girls did not look like me or my family or my friends. So by the time I came of age, there were more, there was more variety in Black children's literature. Nothing like it is now, but definitely more than it was as when I was a child. So I was on a mission to make sure that Black children and parents were exposed to books where our babies could see themselves represented positively. So my nonprofit started out with a book drive in which annually we would raise money to put um, Black children's books into Title I elementary schools. And that grew um, to where we have placed thousands of books in the Title I elementary schools in um, Hampton Roads and even in Flint, Michigan after the Flint water um, crisis. And so we have, you know, many more programs since then. But that was the start with understanding the importance of reading um, and knowing how much that shaped my life and wanted to make sure that all of our children were exposed to that and that parents understood the importance of that as well. Dope, dope. Now, your organization places a strong emphasis on um, culturally affirming literature. How do you think that this type of content can impact a young reader's sense of identity and self-worth, especially as someone who, like you said, you didn't have those images um, growing up? Well, fortunately for me, I did not have the um, images, but I had my family. You know, I, I had the, what, what the stories of what went on in my family, what my family was involved in, and what my granny put in front of me. But the reason why that is extremely important is because a lot of times, if we don't see something and if we don't see ourselves in something, we will begin to feel like that it's other. It's not part of us. It's not something that for us. And the worst thing that can happen is for Black children to feel like that reading or literacy is someone else, is something else. Books are not only possibly for other people, but even if I like reading, protagonists, antagonists, stories are something that belongs to other people. People like me don't belong in literature. People like me don't belong in books. So it's important that our children understand that literacy is us, that literature is us, that reading is us, and also to see um, people, characters that look like them, that they can identify with, that pique their interest in all different types of genres. And so it's important to have books that are like whimsical and fun and there's a dragon in my closet. It's important to have books that affirm our children's existence. I love my hair. I love my beautiful skin. I love these things about myself. It's important to learn about our history and culture. You know, the cliche thing is if we don't learn, 
we're doomed to repeat it. But also, I feel like a lot of us as adults, we have a lot of complaints about ways, directions in which we see the world is going. And if we don't have our young people being aware of who did what and what we've um, been up against and them taking on the mantle and 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 starting this at a young age, then the changes that we desire to see, they're not going to happen. Like it's, it's going to be a hard stop. Like if we're not teaching our children these things to be proud of who we are and the sense of responsibility that we have, and that that's a beautiful thing, then where are the changes coming from? Like they're just going to fall down from the sky. And so I get really excited talking about Black children's literature because it's a tool for learning that can be applicable under so many different topics. Mm. Now you talk about how the world is changing and, in, and one of the ways the world is changing is uh, what we're seeing now is a lot of states or some states, not a lot, mainly one, uh, they're starting to ban certain books, right? Um, and, and and certain books that we might have grown up on or certain books that we might have um, been able to experience as 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 young people ourselves back in our day, uh, those books are being, you know, added to the banned book list, so to speak. How do you think what you're doing and the work that you're doing can counteract that and how can how can parents counteract that who want to have their children reading uh culturally affirming books like what can what can we as adults do to counteract uh, a lot of the foolishness that we're seeing with these banned books so one thing about this is it's bringing an issue to the um forefront that has been important for a while because it's not really like the books that include us that are written by us were promoted like they should have been anyway um there are a lot of black people who could go all the way from kindergarten to graduate in high school before banned books and not even be exposed to black authors not being exposed to black books so now everybody is talking about it and so the books being banned in the schools the responsibility of us as parents as community people is to make sure that we create spaces and if we're not able to create the spaces that we find the spaces that are already doing this in which these, there is this environment for learning and reading. That is one thing that obviously Clever Communities in Action is doing, but as parents, as people who care about this, then we have the ability to purchase these books ourselves, check out these books in places where they're not banned, and to, to you know teach this. And like I said, this is something that is extremely important anyway, because a lot of the books that are there, that are not being banned, that were there before, we're reading those books, children are reading those books, and there's no context in within that. And so the message that that is given, because it's, it's also interesting, not surprising, but with all the racist literature that has been, you know, put in front of us for decades, there were no book bans on that. But now mm -hmm. that there is an emphasis on culturally affirming literature, on teaching the truth, now it's like Bookman. So with as with all things, we need to be proactive. And one of the things about having, you know, little ones, uh, whatever their age is from, you know, little, little ones to teen little ones, it, it causes us to have to step our game up in a lot of ways. So even if you got to go and get the cliff notes, but put the books in the home, have the conversations. Uh, we can't rely on the public school system to teach our children what needs to be taught anyway. It can be a 
supplement, but we create the importance at home. I'm looking at, you know, your bookcase in the background. So that means that there's an environment where your children see books and that's normal. Mm -hmm. If they get curious, they can go on that shelf and pull a book down and start reading it. Or you guys can sit down in there and pull a book down and read it together. But normalize having books in the home, normalize devices off and reading time at home. Right. I agree. And, you know, as someone who has been on the forefront of this movement for a very long time with the Read to Lead initiative, um, you know, I know that's the cornerstone of a lot of the work that you do. Talk a little bit about how that program has um, evolved over, I believe, 11 years or so and how it's impacted the communities that you've been serving. So initially, again, that started out as the youth book drive and it was. Every time I tell this story, I have to shout out my dermatologist, Dr. Coyles. So, you know, I tell you, I get really excited about black children's literature. And so one day I met my dermatologist and I'm just talking to him about what I do. And, you know, he's into it. We're we're chopping it up and everything. And so then he ends up just randomly shooting me an email about. Um, exactly. Exactly. Dr. JL. Um, but he sends uh, he ends up sending me an email about an African-American reading at Chesterfield Academy in Norfolk. And I was like, I've never heard of an African-American reading, but it sounds dope. So I'm going and I'm leaving work and I'm going to this. So I went and it was really beautiful. See, it was in, during was it during? Yeah, I think it was in February during Black History Month. And the children put on a lot. They put on performances and everything. And I really enjoyed it. But as I was looking around the library, I was like, this library does not have enough Black children's books to my liking. So what can I do about it? And this was back before we're all used to crowdfunding now. But I found something called fundraiser. We're talking about in 2011. And mm -hmm. it was a way where, you know, I had the blog site back then and everything. And it was like people outside of the country who were supporters, as well as people all around the country could donate money. So I said, I want to raise money to put these books into these school libraries. And people just started donating money. They just started donating, donating, donating. And that was the first time we were able to put like close to 100 books into Chesterfield Academy and into PB Young. When I first went there, you know, I was so excited leading up to this. And on the way, you know, we were recording this and on the way in, I was like, wait a minute, I'm excited, but this is not an iPad. This is not a video game. What if I get in there and the children have like a lackluster response? What if they're just like, uh, <laughs> okay. So right. this was, you know, like the, the prototype of it. And we go in there, I talk to the AP and um, what we do is spread all the books out on this big desk she had in her office. She calls in some fourth and fifth graders. They come in. We explain. She explains what Clever Communities in Action is doing. And I'm standing there like those babies came in and looked at those books. They were like, wow, mm -hmm. this is amazing. And they're picking up the books and going through the books and just having like the time of their lives. And what I remember the book fair felt like for me, but it wasn't black books. And so one of the babies even asked me for my autograph, which I think was amazing because I brought books. 
And so, you know, that show that our children still get excited about that. And every year from that point on, when we do it, it's a big presentation that we do in the media center or the gym. And it's grown into where we bring in community partners and have guest readers. And we have the children move around in stations with different um, genres and topics. And it's interactive. Um, and it always encourages media specialists to be, you know, intentional about the books that they um, that they select. We also go back and do activities at the schools with some of the books that we donated, but we always get to see the children being excited. Like they're literally, when they're coming in the library and they see all the books lined up, they're like, can we get in? Can we get in? And then there's always a child or two or three after we donate these books, they have to be rotated into the system, into the media center. And there's always a child who is like trying to hold on to a book. Like I, 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 I want this book now. I want to take it now. And I'm always like to the media specialist, can you please write his or her name down and make sure that they get the book? And I don't think I put that book over here in front of me. But one of the main ones is this book about Malcolm X um, when he was a child. And it has a very striking mm -hmm. cover. And it's mm -hmm. always a little boy who grabs, grabs that book and is just like not wanting to let the book go. And so... Um, yeah, that, you know, that's the origin of it. That's watching the impact that it has on the children, seeing how the media specialists, a lot of times they learn about titles that they weren't aware of and the conversations we have around intentionality um, when we select the books for the children. I'm glad to see that in some places it's getting better. When we first started out, a lot of the libraries really were like lacking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, I have, I'm, I'm some would say I'm fortunate enough. I don't know. Depends on who you ask to have kids on two separate uh, sides of the age spectrum. One is a sophomore in college and one is a, a kindergartner. Uh, so I'm old enough to remember when my 19 year old was starting school, uh, there weren't a lot of culturally affirming books in the library. Right. So this was maybe uh, my uh, math ain't the best, maybe 14 years ago, right? And my son, when, you know, when I took him to, uh, when we were touring magnet schools, um, you know, I was able to see in the, uh, in the media centers. I think when we started, it might've been, um, wasn't Black History Month. There was something else going on. Um, I'm not sure, but there were books around the media center that spoke to that month. And I, you know, it was easy to, to, to recognize that there were things being acknowledged and there were people that were actually paying attention and paying homage to, uh, you know, certain heritage and histories uh, through books. And that wasn't something that I saw, you know, 14 years ago when, when my daughter was going through kindergarten, when she was going through elementary school, I remember I had to ask them like, y'all don't do nothing for black history month. Like, right. yeah. Y'all don't do nothing. Like, like I had to ask my daughter, I said, what do y'all know for Black History Month? And she was like, nothing. And I had to email the teacher and she was like, no, we don't, we don't do anything for Black History Month. Like, I'm curious, <laughs> you feel me? The, the teachers or the media specialists, were they Black? What? When Nyla was growing up? Yes. Or now? Nyla. When Nyla was growing up? No, no, no. Uh-uh. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, but the schools that we visited with Mace, um, you know, some of those folks were, 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 were black. Some of them were Latinx. You know, they were all uh, different, you know, because we went to a couple of different schools. But this was specifically with Nyla when she was 
in school, like the school that she attended growing, like her elementary school, um, which oddly enough, the principal was black at one point, um, her first year there, but that's a different, different story for a different day. Um, so let's, let's, let's kind of move on a little bit. And because I know that during the pandemic, we saw, uh, schools and educators having to shift to, uh, virtual learning, um, uh, and that, you know, the pandemic took a toll on a lot of things. Like I talked to a lot of teachers and a lot of educators who talk about learning loss during the pandemic. How has your work specifically with the, what you were doing with the virtual village show, uh, how did you kind of like a, a, adapt to the pandemic and kind of maintain engagement in literacy and education and, and, and the effectiveness of the work that you do? I have to say with all due sensitivity to what everybody, um, experience during that time, it was a um, miraculous, a beautiful time for our organization because um, prior to the pandemic, just a few months before the pandemic, we had started using uh, StreamYard to interview Black authors. And um, I became familiar with this, this uh, you know, technology. And once the pandemic hit, Initially, if you guys remember, I don't know how it was everywhere else, but here in Hampton Roads, it was a two-week thing. It was like the schools are going to be shut down for two weeks. And that's what, you know, people left thinking it was going to be. And right. um, I reached out to a friend who was on the school board and I'm distraught because I'm like, how are our babies going to eat? And what's going to happen? Because, you know, some of them depend on lunch, school for breakfast and lunch. Da, da, da. And, you know, we have this whole conversation It's like, slow down, calm down. And we came up with the idea of doing the read-in. And it started out as a read-in. And what we did, we had a sign-in mechanism. And we came on and we started talking to people about the fact that they could come in and sign up. So at first, a uh, school board member and I, we came on um, in the late morning and in the evening, and we read Black children's books. And then we made it where people could sign up and come on to read. And a community was built. Remember, at this point, everybody was shut in and nobody knew mm -hmm. what was really going on. And mm -hmm. so people started, really started tuning in and it became the virtual village because we always have that village mentality. And so people really built bonds around black children's literature. We had parents, grandparents. We had principals, assistant principals, news anchors. Um, we had children in other city, in other states. We had children in other states become friends with our children because people became regulars coming on to read. And literally a sense of community was built. People were tuning in to watch this and to participate in this. And it was a beautiful thing that evolved into a show in which we <clears throat> I, we had young people who became like um, stars of the show. You know, they mm -hmm. it was it was virtual with um, it was live. And then we had pre-recorded segments that was like moment in history that were like moment in his moments in history, Sankofa time. Um, we had teachers who came on and did foundational literacy lessons. And then it evolved into a show that was hosted by children for children. The literacy game was born and it was just beautiful. And we really pushed the limits of what StreamYard could do because it literally turned into a show with an opener and a theme song. Um, we had commercials where we were support like black businesses were able to have, you know, pre-recorded commercials. 
And it was it was beautiful. Community came together. And so we had to pivot to answer your question. We had to pivot instead of being mm -hmm. like it's, you know, everything is closed down. We can't do anything. It was like, how can we take advantage of what we have in the moment? And then how can we even push it to do something that um, serves our children and serves our community um, in, a, in a creative and effective way? And so again, like it was a very magical time. It was, it was, it was like straight community time. And I really enjoyed it. And a lot of our, our children were, um, we're all about high expectations for black children, because we understand that as long as we have these high expectations and they're backed by love and belief in our children, that they can and they will meet those expectations. So some children found their voice, their voices by coming on and reading during that time. And then our young people who were hosts of the show and then the ones who became guest readers of the show. And they would love to see the comments down at the bottom where the grown mm -hmm. people would be like, oh, you are doing an amazing job. And the feedback that they got, because some of them, the ones who were readers, you would see them reading, but then they peek up to look at the comments. And right, one of the right, most right. beautiful things I had a parent to tell me, it was like a month ago, he texted me and said, every now and then, you know, I go into my son's room and I see him like, you know, in the computer and I'm like, what's going on? And he's going back and watching the clip of when he was on the show and he was mm. crying. It was like, you know, because the way you all affirmed him and the people in the comment section affirmed him. And so this was in 2020 or 2021. It had to be and he's like, my son goes back and just looks at this periodically and he'll have tears in his eyes. And I'm like, you know, and so that's that's the village. So we appreciate, you know, we pivoted, but the village was a part of that. The village was supportive and the way grown people came and affirmed our babies when they were reading and all. The, you know how we do. Yes, baby, you got it, baby. You got all right, of that. Right. And take, your take your time. Take, take your time. time. You got it. Right. And all of that was so amazing so the power in the village the power in love uh we talk I, I talk a lot about uh when it comes to black children um who, what i call guerrilla love you know we've heard of guerrilla war guerrilla mm -hmm. war tactics where you just mm -hmm. you know you get gangster with it just you know no no rules it is a guerrilla love is just we're gonna love on you <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. we are going to make sure that we show love and value and that you know that you are valued and so our village came on and you know it was a, it was an extension of those values that we have because everybody understood that and everybody felt that so that was our mm -hmm. um pandemic experience right 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 and so let, let's talk about when when folks donate books right when they donate the culturally affirming books to the organization um is or even the books that you were that you were reading during the the, the virtual read-ins how do you select the literature and is there a certain criteria that uh it must meet so it's very interesting that you say that we prefer people want to donate books a lot and we have a list and so if you pull books off that list that is fine but otherwise just donating books not really a fan of that because i'm very meticulous about um what's in those books Mm -hmm. So we have to look and make sure. So 90, probably 98% of the books that we use have black authors. Uh, but even within that, we go and we look through it. Like one time, 
there was a book that was offered to me and um, it was it was about. So I noticed within the book that it was about some little boys and the little girls that they liked or the little girls that they favored were all of a lighter skin tone um, mm -hmm. or were not black. And the mm -hmm. ones who were just kind of there were darker skinned. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I was like, Aunt X, you know, no, no disrespect or anything like that. But we have to be very careful of the messages that we are sending. So we look for things like that. Is it affirming all the way around? Is it, you know, does it, does it go into stereotypes or tropes that we know are not progressive, that are not, um, that are not um, safe or helpful or affirming for our children. So we look at that, we look at, you know, what it's about, all of these different things. And that's, that's very, is it accurate? Um, there was a book one time that I got from the library and it was about um, Dr. King. And basically in the middle, because this was something that I was doing years ago with a partner. And um, as I'm reading the book, it was basically saying like, you know, Dr. King, he marched, he went to Chicago and, you know, after he did that, racism was over and everything mm. was fine. And literally, as I'm reading this book to the children, y'all know how Duck on the Five Heartbeats, when he was playing the piano and JT was like, nah, come on, man, come on. And Duck was like, nah, this this my music, JT. He was like, nah. And so I'm reading this book and I'm like, uh-uh. So I stopped right in the middle and we had a lesson on revisionist history. And so with some mm. elementary, some of my elementary students, we talked about what revisionist history is, mm -hmm. how to look out for that. And it was like pause. And it was like, yeah, we can't we can't finish this book. And mm -hmm. I talked mm -hmm. a little bit about the realities of, you know, what it was. So no revision. And it was a black author. And it was also a relative of Dr. King. I think it was his wow. niece who wrote the book. But I was wow. like, you know, hey, niece. I'm a, well, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that because mm -hmm. that's not the way that it happened. I don't know who right. or what made you feel like that's the way that story should be told, but we're not, not today, not today. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yeah, those types of things are incredibly important. We, we have to be uh, very mindful. And again, having children, it causes us, so anti-Blackness is rampant around the, gro the globe mm -hmm. and anti-Blackness uh, it doesn't mean that black people are not susceptible to anti-blackness. If you think about it, if you think about what it actually is and who it was done to, who was, you know, like the, the target of it. And so we always have to check our anti-blackness ometer and make sure that we are not on that scale. So we have to, you know, as, as, as parents, as mentors, as educators, as any of these things, um, community leaders, we have to make sure that we are not perpetuating those things in any types of ways. So as we go through these books, these are things that we're looking out for. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about checking our anti, what did you say? Anti-blackness-ometer. Anti-blackness-ometer. Yes. Anti okay, let's, let's, let's dive into that a little bit. Uh, tell us how to how does one check their anti-blackness ometer? Give me the give me the steps for checking that. Is it like checking your oil? Is it like every five thousand miles? Is it every you know five hundred black people you meet? Like what's the what do you do? How do you get there? <laughs> so it could it could be a you know a daily thing because once you sit back and think about it, because we've been taught that a lot of black things are 
uh, negative or they are less than, they are sub, you know, the classics. If we're talking about art, if we're talking about music, you know, it's not because we're urban. We're, you know, we get thrown. And I, I don't think that categorizing our things as black or anything, that there's anything wrong with that. But the problem becomes when it's made to be sub, when it's less than. So if we buy into those beliefs or tropes that anything is less than because it's black, then that is, you know, your anti-blackness, you want it like on zero, but it is it, it, coming over, it's coming over. And so that's a way to um, think about that. I'll tell you one thing, because I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good with this. Uh, I'm not above somebody if, if, if somebody talks to me and says, you know, possibly that I missed something. Um, none of, we all should be teachable, but I think I'm pretty good with it. But one thing, one thing that I knew one time I with me, I was like, you're doing this with names. You're doing it with names. And while I will say that there can be some things sometimes that, um, you know, have been outlandish, I also think that about, you know, white names or traditional names, that some of those things are ugly or weird or whatever. Um, so, but there's this book right here and it's called Your Name is a Song. And I was so glad to find Your Name is a Song. And I was so glad to find this because, you know, I found this years after I had this conversation in my head about the names. But a lot of the names that people will call ghetto or whatever is, you know, uh, uh, Shaniqua, uh, whatever. You, you, you pick a name, pick a black Jamonte, uh, mm -hmm. whatever. I'm like, but that's it's, it's rhythmic. You know, it's 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 unique to us. Why, if it's unique to us, does it mean that there's something wrong with it? Or when people mm -hmm. choose to um, pick names that may um, have a calling back to um, Africa or such things. But even some of the names that are black American names, the way they flow, it's almost like it sounds like some of those names. And so I'm like, here's a beautiful lens to look at that. You know, people are out here naming their kids. Apple is if some of these names, like, of course, I'm not going to think of it because I'm talking about it right now. But some of those names that we've been taught to look at because it came from other people that, oh, that's that's distinct or that's, you know, uh, you actual roles. Yeah. Yes. Like all of, all of these things. And because it comes from other people, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, that's a beautiful name or that's a unique name or that's a whatever name. And I'm like, but, um, you know, I'm so here for Davion. You know, I'm I'm so here for that. Like, why is that a problem? Why do we automatically feel like that the things that we come up with that there is something wrong with us? We with it, with it. We allow people to make us feel that way. Now, like I said, just like I think names from other people, some of them can be like, okay, I don't like that. Um, there are some names with us, but I think some of us just have a thing that if it is not, if it is something that by any way it can be identified that it is a black person, then it is negative. And I would say that on your anti-black ometer, challenge yourself, why do I feel that way? Why do I feel that way? How does that serve me? How does that serve my community? Also, how does that make me treat people or children who have those names? Do right. I, as a black person, have any preconceived notions if I have a list of kids or kids who come up to me and, you know, their names are Nevaeh or, you know, what, whatever. Um, Smarge. 
Yes, yes. Yeah, because these are names of children in our community. And so mm -hmm. I'm like, if you cringe, just automatically like, where's where is that coming from? Why? You know, of course, we have anti-blackness. Um, we the obvious things are colorism, uh, featureism, texturism, you know, all of these isms that have been placed upon us and 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 challenging ourselves. You know, if you've ever joked people, you so black, you'll complain, and especially right. if you're saying it to a child, because I right. would tell you what, I'm a pretty, I'm a peaceful person, I want peace. But if you try to assassinate the self-esteem of a black child, I don't care who you are. I'm going to intervene. So if you hit with the you so black, your hair so neck, get out, the, you need to get out the sun, um, anything mm -hmm. like that. And I'm a rap. I'm older now, so I'm better at, you know, having a, a conversation about it. Like, you know, mm -hmm. hey. Or calling in, know, calling in instead of calling out. Calling in, yes. Like mm -hmm. you know, let, mm -hmm. let's let's talk about this. But it's things, and so here's the thing. Really, anybody who's saying that it was said to them or around, them. right, right. Absolutely. And so just going back and thinking about how did that make you feel, or if you were not the one that it was being said to, maybe you were the one who had the desired hair texture, but it was being mm -hmm. said to your siblings or your cousins or friends around you. You know, are you listening to that? Are you thinking about how that made you feel, or if it was said to you, are you thinking about how it made you feel? And instead of, um, you know, recycling that and putting that on other children, there's there's a, there's a different way to do it. So that's that anti-blackness ometer to think about that because we want our children to be healthy, we want them to be affirmed, we want them to love who they are, and we want them to value our community. We want them. I feel that they need to have a sense of responsibility. So if the community is treating them in ways in which they are not valuable, then that sense of community is not going to be there. You know, and I also talk about, um, you know, anti-Blackness could be if you see Black teenagers and you're automatically scoffing or you have some, you know, fear that comes over you. Because I try to make a point to speak to Black teenagers when I'm out and about. Um, hey, how y'all doing? Even when I've seen them places where I feel like they shouldn't be, like, Hey, how y'all doing? What's going on? And I've not been cursed out. I've not like had... a true auntie, like a true auntie. And I've been an auntie since I was like 20, right. you know? And so I have not had a negative experience, um, you know, thus far. Um, even when I have seen them sometimes in, in situations that we know are not becoming, uh, whether it's thing, and it's not, it's not always, you know, they're not always doing things that are not becoming, but if we allow ourselves to associate that with black youth, because guess what? Don't act like you didn't curse. Right, right, right. Even if you were just testing the water with some things that you were doing and don't act like that teenagers don't make mistakes. Like what is our role as an adult? Is it for us to expect for teenagers to be perfect mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or is it for us to guide them? And so mm -hmm. when I've seen them sometimes, when I'm able and they're doing things that might not be, that are not the best for them to do, I'm like, now I'm looking at you and you are beautiful and I'm really shocked. Or you are, you are so handsome. Like you are so capable, your presence. And I'm really shocked at the things that are coming out of your mouth because I see brilliance in you. And I'm like, what's coming out your mouth is not matching, you know, what I see. And I know you're capable of, you know, and so the, like that way, or, you know, what the, 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 
I, I'm seeing your behind and I'm trying to understand, like, I, I, you know, just having conversations in that type of way instead of scoffing at them. Like when we believe in black children, when we value black children, when we love black children, when we protect them and when we understand how important they are, it can change the trajectory of how we interact with them. And so, again, if it's automatically disdain, because if we've talked about if adults are saying and doing things that are negative, then, you know, that's that. I mean, some of it is just young people being young and then other is modeling. And so maybe they've not had any, not maybe a lot of times they have not had anybody to come in and approach it from a place of love. That's where the gorilla mm -hmm. love came from, because I've seen it. I've seen kids you know, literally be stunned, like in stopped in their tracks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Dr. Adolph said he was cursing at the age of five and now he's a professor. Every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. That's a, that's a fact. Um, so you, you touched on something and now, you know, now that I think I'll say that we are the youngest elders that the world has ever seen right because like we're the old heads now like me and you are, are, are roughly the same age you're a little bit older than me um but yeah, one you know, year. Okay, stop. <laughs> but but we are the you know it seems like you know back in the days uh you know our, our aunties and uncles like they were like going bald at 27 and they had the george jefferson and they were you know they just looked a little different you know what i mean i don't think they were as cool as we are now at at 40 plus um, do you think that there is a certain, I don't want to say responsibility, but do you think there is a certain, um, I guess we will say responsibility that we have, um, to balance the two, because we, we grew up in an age of hip hop. Like we grew up in an age of, you know, Snoop Dogg, Gin and Juice and, and DMX and Jay-Z. Like we grew up in that era. And, you know, I tell people when it comes to, to music and culture, what they're seeing now is just an extension of that. You know, I, you know, people, and this is a different conversation. We start talking about people like Sexy Red and some of the artists that are out now. I, I always argue that they're just an extension of who we are. So do you think that we as the old heads now have a responsibility to um, be t as tough on the, the, this generation as our parents were on us? Or should we have a little bit more grace? So... It's funny that you brought that up because I was kind of wondering if that would seep into this conversation. And one of the weirdest things to me, so I have critiques about the current state of hip hop and, you know, music overall, but I've mm -hmm. had critiques on hip hop for a while. And so it's mm -hmm. really growing up being a head, you know, being a hip hop head and loving the getting my first, you know, hip hop tape when I was in the fourth grade, when I tricked that same granny into buying me the great adventures of slick rick so understand the critiques come from somebody who loves black culture and has been in you know was just in awe like literal awe of hip-hop as a youngin like just awe of them and so like the oh my gosh but nonetheless i find it really weird when people our age are i've seen debates on in in, in threads on instagram and people will talk about Sexy Red and then somebody jumps in there and says something about, well, Lil' Kim, Foxy Brown. And you will see people our age argue them down that those people mm -hmm. have nothing to do with it. And I'm like, I saw it yesterday. Sway? I saw it yesterday. How, Sway? What are you, what mm -hmm. are you talking about? Like, mm -hmm. they gave birth to that. 
you know, also because this is such a nuanced conversation, because we can't just talk about, you know, the, the women and what they're doing that we don't like without talking about murder music. Um, but let's let's know. stop right there. Let's stop. Let's stop right there for one second, because the argument specifically, specifically with Sexy Red and with people like Ice Spice and this new generation of women hip hop stars, it's only because they're women only because they're women. You don't hear anybody having these same conversations about Too Short. You don't hear anybody having these same conversations about Snoop Dogg when he was walking the women down the red carpet with the chain. You don't hear those conversations. And when you when you when you hold people's feet to the fire and say, okay, well, we can we can we can say what we want to say about sexy red, but are you willing to throw away all of your Snoop Dogg music? Are you willing to throw away all your Biggie music? Are you willing to throw away all of your uh, 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 Jay-Z and DMX CDs and downloads and all of that stuff? They say no. And my argument is always, if you're not willing to disregard that, if you're not willing to snub your nose at that, then let these kids have their music. You are so right. And of course, we are on the same page. And, you know, another thing I saw a while ago, it was a City Girls clip. And this was when I first started noticing these conversations. And men were in the comments like, this is the end of our community. And I was like, you look older than me. And so I was like, you were a part of a two live crew, you know, yeah. that, that time frame. And, you know, Dame Dash and them, when they had the, the lick and they're mm -hmm. pouring it up. So as long as as men are the ones objectifying women, it's okay. It's cool. It's women cool. take on the behavior. And then when they're baffled as to why women do it, I'm like, um, what was, what's the, uh, what's the, the Tupac um, acronym, N-I-G-G-A-S? What, what was that? Um, what did that stand oh, for? Oh, gosh. I can't remember. So can't, anyway, when people are oppressed in ways they find a way to push back against, you know, they, they'll claim, you know, they'll take on, you will see in a lot of marginalized communities where people will take on the name, the characteristics in which the people who were in control put on them, they reclaim it. So people understand that with, you know, black men and the N word. Um, so when you constantly listening to music and you're black, you are part of the culture, you like the beat, you like the, you know, just just the creativity and everything around it, but it's constantly be this, H that, you know, all of these different things. So then the women started saying, well, I'll own that. You won't come. And so whether we agree with that or not, Dr. JL is Okay, he's on it. Never rest. ignorant getting goals accomplished. He on it. He on it. Thank you, sir. He is on it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I love it. I love it. Because <laughs> we both had a, you know, we, we forgot. Yeah. But nonetheless, we may not agree with these um things, but understand that the psychology and the sociology behind human behavior. So we get it when men do it, but we don't get it when when do when women do it. Mm -hmm. But back mm -hmm. to your original question. So I feel like we have to have grace, even within our critiques. It's always easier when you are talking to somebody about something and you're like, well, I've experienced this or, you know, I, you know, I've been a, a part like, let me tell you something. OK, so, you know, my story that when I moved here to Virginia, I was 12 and I lived with my dad and mm -hmm. I was raised by, my, you know, my dad was always in my life. But from that point on, I was raised by my dad. So I had my dad in the house, but um, very much involved. Reggie Armstrong didn't play. 
and Reggie Armstrong loved me. But when hardcore came out, I just was like, that's crazy. <laughs> I was like, I cannot believe this stuff is being said. That's and crazy. because of that, and by just being a teenager, you know, I listened to it. I had it. I don't think he heard it. But because of the home environment that I had, that's what it was. It was music. And that was it. But I knew every line and I still know every line. So right. I can't be a hypocrite to anybody about that. Do I wish, you know, that things were different? Do I feel conversation? Here's, here's the biggest thing that this generation has is social media. We didn't have that. So you right. actually had to get the tape or you had to get the CD. And if it, you know, it was either played on the radio or it wasn't, or, you know, if you saw a video and a lot of times those things were edited. But now everything just gets put out and it's in a constant cycle over and over and over again. And it's easy for a self easier for a self-made person to, you know, come out, which is which has its positives and its negatives. But it's just there. We're inundated with that in a way that did not happen to us. And of course, you know, the conversation about balance that is not there. Right. So, right. you know, for uh, Lil' Kim, there's Rod Digger. Um, you right. know, and 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 right. Lauren Hill, which is and, a, which is which is a totally different argument than arguing about the artist, right? Because my point has always been, you know, recently since the sexy red conversations have started, is that as we get older, our ears become more conservative. Like I can't listen to the same things at forty three and enjoy them that I did at twenty three because I'm, I live a different life, right? And society has changed, like societal norms have changed. So when when Sexy Red says, when she, when she says her, I'm not even going to say because it it's a very, very family-friendly podcast. When she says her lyrics, her, the song that got her famous, that's no different than what Lil' Kim said back in the day when she said the songs that were that made us go in awe. It's, it's, it's the same meaning. Right. It's the, it's the same meaning. The, the body is the same. There's no different body parts that you can rap about. Like nobody created new body parts in the last 25 years. There's nothing new under the sun. It's just that as we've gotten older, our ears are more conservative. And I, I think with Sexy Red, I think she gets a bad rap. And I think a lot of it when it comes from black folks, it's based in um, it's, it's definitely based in sexism because she's a woman, but it's also based in colorism. Right. A lot of it is based when they look at her, they don't see the 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 the, the, the quote unquote pretty girl with the light eyes and the blonde. Hair. Like they don't see that when they see her. She is herself and she is authentically herself in every space that she walks in. And all I can do is, is, is appreciate that and understand that she don't make music for me. Like I'm not a, a 19 year old kid. I'm 43. Like she shouldn't be making music for me because that's that's just I I, I listen to Nas. <laughs> that is the one thing that I can say I appreciate about her. Um, no, no disrespect, no hard feelings to anybody, but in a if you know if this is your thing, but in a world of BBLs and you know just a lot of trying feeling the pressures of having to look a certain way, she right. has not succumbed to that. And so that's the only thing that I could say that um, I do notice about her that I like. Some of the other arguments that I saw that were insane to me was that, well, Lil' Kim had talent. Foxy Brown had talent. They could 
they could spit. And I was like, so are you saying if you feel like she had, if she could spit better that the song you were talking about, like if that was the theme, but she executed it in a way that was more right. to your liking, she was exactly. a better lyricist, then you would have, a, you wouldn't have like cap. And I don't even use that word, but all cap, cap. Like, all cap, all cap, like stop playing. And so, I mean, I have things that I will say about it if I'm called to a conversation about it, but with balance and with an understanding, like, so the generation before always has to take a responsibility for what comes with the generation behind us. So here's the thing that we did not do, that our generation did not do. Now, we used to have a program called the Hip Hop Youth Initiative. And in that program, we taught the five elements of hip hop and we showed, gosh, now I can't think of what the movie was that we showed the um, our youth. And then after that, so, and, and then they, they watched self-destruction and we're all in the same game. And we had mm-hmm. conversations around that. And then they and had- you remade to- self-destruction. Huh? You remade self-destruction. We did, we did, they did. So they had to come up with, they had to decide which element they wanted to be a part of in the boot camp, and they received instruction. And then they had to come together and create a song that represented their generation that had the weight, that had the same weight of self-destruction over all in the same game. And, um, you know, we also did a, a play and a project around it, but we had a couple of classes of that. And so the thing is, we have to teach the culture. We have, it, it's up to us to make the culture valued and respected. And I think if we did not do that, but then we're mad because young people are not doing that. Like who was supposed to do that? Who who was the person that was supposed to make them understand that? If they weren't born and they didn't know, if we didn't do it, that's on us. And so mm-hmm. as I'm talking to a younger generation about things to consider, things to think about, I have to insert us. I can't just act like y'all, you know, like I I say our parents' generation did not do the best job overall of talking about our history and the responsibility that we have because they were the post-civil rights generation. And I think with them having gone through a lot of things that they did, or even their parents, their parents kind of were like, uh, you know, and then they were like, uh, I don't want my, you know, I don't want to weigh them down or maybe there was trauma, whatever the reasons were. But they they a lot overall didn't push that the way that they should have. So now you get, you know, what you got. And I think we did an all right job with that. We had the conscious hip hop era. You know, we had a lot of different things going on in which we tried. You know, we we, we had our, our 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 time and our mark in that. But this whole hip hop thing. If we are pointing fingers and we're not taking responsibility, it's just weird to me and it's lazy mm-hmm. and it's irresponsible. I agree. I agree 100%. So since I didn't I didn't intend for this to turn into a conversation about culture and hip hop, but I should have known um, with you that that's the direction that it was going to go. So let's stay here for a minute and let's talk about how in education, right, how can teachers, how can educators use this type of conversation and this type of content that we're referring to um, in their pedagogy? Like, how can they use it in um, encouraging kids to read and encouraging kids to pick up a book and encouraging kids to further their educational journey? How do you think they can use culture um, in that quest? 
So question, are you talking about using the things that we're saying we don't feel serve the community or our youth? Um, or are you, are you saying how can they make that positive or like clarify? I'm, 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 I'm saying, how can they, how can they use hip hop culture, which our hip hop culture that we grew up on is totally different from what the kids are growing up on now. How can they use hip hop culture as it is today to assist with their pedagogy? So I would just, you know, say use the beats when I do it. However, when I when I've done that, I'm teaching them about the classics and mm -hmm. making that interesting and also helping them understand samples that, you know, but but teaching about hip hop. Because where's the mm -hmm. lesson in hip hop? And then infusing that in ways. I see a lot of people doing this on Instagram where they're infusing the music in lessons that they have. Um, mm -hmm. And that's always a beautiful thing. I think we've been doing that with music for a long time and our children are receptive to that. But as they get, I mean, I, you know, I just think teaching the culture, which means going back to the classics, is always an important thing to do. We have that responsibility because going back to what I said, we know when people start talking about the classics and the greats, they're often not talking about us. So let's make sure that we are having those conversations and not in a way like you don't know, you know, you don't know real music. But just like, hey, let me introduce y'all to or when you know samples that are, you know, when when samples are being sampled, <laughs> um, like infusing that and having those particular conversations, because we don't want our culture to die. Mm -hmm. Like it's mm -hmm. it's a, it's on a slow death if we're not. That goes for R&B and, you know, like all elements of our um, music. And if we're talking about music right now. So infuse those things and usually kids will get excited about it. Like, you know, I, it, it was before my time, but I live in, I love seventies. Like I, I love music from the seventies as well as um the eighties and I'll, you know, but wake up everybody and, and the kids will get into it. They will, mm -hmm. because that can't die. It can't die. And that's the same thing with hip hop. Okay, those are things that gave, even that music from the 70s, that's where all the hip hop samples came from that we grew up on. So if we really value our culture, like take a moment and get into it and get them into mm -hmm. it. And a lot of times when I'm listening to music on YouTube, I'm a comment reader. So I'll go and read a read comments sometimes. And I see so many people who are like, I'm 12 and I love this music. You know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm 21, I'm 16. And, you know, this is this is my favorite. So whether it's hip hop or whether, like I said, I've time traveled, as I called it, back to the 70s or the 80s or whatever, or even the 60s. Um, I'm a I'm a lover of black music. I'm a lover of music, period. But um, I'm a I'm a lover and a champion of black music. And so incorporate that. Have fun with that. What we talk about a lot of time. Remember, on Saturdays when it was time to clean up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do it in the home. Take it. Like, do a time travel. Do a time but also, and again, don't be condescending. Mm -hmm. But also, I think it's important to understand and to teach there are other elements of hip hop besides just the MC, right? I think you could use things like DJing. I think you can use things like b-boying. I think you can definitely use things like graph writing. Like all of those elements can be infused to to your point to let the kids know um, what makes hip hop special because this is the only genre of music that has more than just one element, right? It has, it's a, it's a culture. KRS said it best is 
it's 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 it's, it's what you do, right? It's not what you do; it's who you are. Um, and I think that's important to understand. Dr. Adolph said he uses modern hip hop to discuss hard topics about misogyny, women's sexuality, empowerment, and social media presence in his English courses. Uh, use this to inspire students to read Shakespeare, Baldwin, and Morrison. Um, and I think again, that's important, especially especially in um, in literacy. I think their studies have been shown that when you infuse hip hop uh, in your pedagogy, in your curriculum, specifically at a middle and high school age, that kids are are are, are doing better on their test scores. There are schools in Detroit. There's a program in New York that I could cite that all have infused hip hop culture and 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 hip hop music into their into their curriculum. And now they are seeing uh, numbers off the charts for their test scores. So I think that's important to meet these students where they are. So uh, we're, 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 go ahead, Clever. We go back to being culturally affirming. And definitely I agree with what you said about the, the elements. Cause like I said, in our hip hop youth initiative, we taught all five of the elements. I would say that even in R&B though, it's not called elements, but there's more than one because there's the singer. But, you know, before we went into the 80s, there were bands. There were whole bands mm -hmm. with, you know, mm -hmm. sections, the horn section, the percussion section, um, you know. And so that's important as well, because that taps into, you know, all different things that children can be interested in. Or, But nonetheless, and what um, Dr. Uh, what the doc said is extremely important as we get um, with, with our older children to be able to have these conversations. And also what we want are um, free Thinkers, critical, critical thinkers is what we want. So when we're able to have the conversations like such as he said and juxtapose things and throw things out there and correlate things, that is extremely important. But we what we want to raise are critical thinkers. So yeah. Yeah, that's dope. That's dope. So since we're running out of time, let's let's um kind of close out with uh just a question about what your organization is doing, how people can get involved uh, with helping what, what it is that you're doing and just talking about um, what y'all got coming up. So um, we talked about Read to Lead. We also have a middle school book club that we just started um, and that is called the Literacy Gang Book Club. And our first book that we did and we're gonna rerun this one is um, Victory Stand. And it's about um, Tommy Smith and um, uh, Carlos um, and the 1968 Olympics. And we've all, you know, seen this. Even the children have seen that fist salute. It's on a lot of paraphernalia, but mm -hmm. most people don't know. A lot of people don't know what that was actually about. So and the author, um, New York Times bestselling author, highly decorated author is a friend of the organization, Derek Barnes. He has a lot of excellent children's books to check out if you have um, children. Um, so there's the Literacy Gang Book Club. There is also the Law Scholars Program for Teenagers that is L-A-A-W, which stands for Literacy as a Weapon. And we use the book, The Color of Law, one of our only books that's not by a Black author, but it talks about how the government used housing discrimination to create a white middle class. So redlining, mm. zoning, Redline, right? various forms yeah. of housing discrimination. Um, and with the New Deal and other policies that were passed to create this white middle class through home ownership, but simultaneously lock black people out of that, which created generational wealth for them and not for us. And it has so much to do with the disparities that we see in a lot of our communities versus other communities and where black children um, who become black adults 
and just people overall see those disparities and think there's just something inherently wrong with us when they don't know the lengths that the government went to to create those disparities and to, mm -hmm. you know, dismantle these bootstrap narratives. And so we have teenagers. We read this book. We dissect this book. Um, we bring in experts. Um, we do mapping, all of these different things. And then our like our first group, they interview people um, who had experienced these things. Our group this past summer, they had a podcast because we did the correlation between redlining and gun violence. And they interviewed mm. people who had real firsthand experience with gun violence for a podcast, which will be coming out, um, you know, sometime in the future. I'll keep people abreast of that. It's being edited now. But um, they have gone on to be like change agents. Um, they have gone on to speak out. Speaking of book bans, you know, they come in quiet and timid and creating that safe space where you're like your voice is worthy of being heard and they understand that. So they blossom and they now, you know, have spoke at school board meetings against book bans. Um, they have organized their peers. They have passed bill, um, proposed bills to the General Assembly against food insecurity that got passed. They are activists. They have a lot. They've gone on to college and their majors have been based upon, you know, we have some urban planners. We have like like some are going into film, but everything is about the responsibility that they know they have towards the community and the information that they learn. So they are organizers and they have this information at a young age. And they are out there in the world. So we're excited. This is a summer program and we're looking forward to our next class of um, law scholars. And we'll be promoting that program soon, getting ready um, for the summertime. And so those are our um, programs. If you would like to support our work, um, I have on there that on Instagram, we can be found at CCA underscore org. Our website is clevercommunities.org. Um, if you would like to um, be on our newsletter, you can send us a, a DM or um, email us admin at clevercommunities.org and we'll add you to our mailing list. And also, if you would like to support our work, then you can go to clevercommunities.org and make a donation or I, I'll tell you all the ways because community support means everything. So um, our cash app is uh, Clever Communities. And our PayPal is donations at clevercommunities.org. But you can go directly to our website, clevercommunities.org, if you want to sow, you know, a seed into the work that we do. But also, we just we appreciate the feedback. Follow us. Tell people about us. You know, interact with us. And yeah, if you were moved by any of this, you know, we, we I, I definitely appreciate it. Well, thank you for gracing us with your presence, ma'am. This is definitely a a uh, very awesome conversation. Uh, I got to shout out Jamie West, who uh, said that she appreciated hearing our perspectives. Thank you, Jamie. Um, Thank you. So, yeah, if 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 you want to get more of Dads in the Class, the podcast is available on all platforms. Uh, if you want to check out the last uh, the previous six episodes, be sure to check us out on YouTube under the Glad Dads page. Uh, just share, like and subscribe and help us get the this message of fatherhood and family engagement out to the masses. Uh, to as many people as we can. Uh, other than that, Star Armstrong, thank you for joining us on the show for this episode, ma'am. I will thank definitely be inviting me. you back. Uh, you have a great, uh, a great story. We didn't, I didn't, I wanted to dive into your story, more of your story about uh, being raised by your dad, because of course it's his dad's in the class. Uh, but you know, whenever the conversation of hip hop and culture comes up, I kind of get lost in the sauce. So 
uh, we'll have you back to talk about that and to talk about dads and how we can engage fathers in uh, the work that you're doing and the work that I'm doing. But super dope episode. And uh, we'll see y'all next week. Peace. Yeah, thank you. Hey, are you looking for new and innovative ways to connect with your children? Do you want to learn how to connect with them through hip hop, social media and popular culture? Then look no further than my company, The Glad Dad. I'm Dion, a keynote speaker, professional development trainer and workshop presenter. And I'm also an expert in family engagement. And I want to show you and everyone around you how to use the latest trends to connect with young people on a much deeper level, a level that will truly break down barriers and create change. By working with The Glad Dad, you'll learn how to break through the noise and meet young people where they are to connect with them on their level. You'll discover new ways to communicate, engage, and create meaningful connections that'll last a lifetime. Whether you're a parent, teacher, or youth leader, I want to teach you the strategies that'll help you connect with your kids like never before. From keynote speeches to professional development training, I got you covered. So don't wait any longer. Visit my website, DionChavis.com today to learn more about how I can help you connect with your children through hip-hop, social media, and popular culture. Your kids will thank you for it. That's right, the Glad Dad, helping adults establish positive relationships with young people. Reach out to me today and let's discuss how I can serve you and your staff. Now let's get back to the podcast.